greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. This is God's word. Father, come now and help us. Pray that God the Spirit's ministry would abound in this place on this morning. We want to be able to savor you as creator, sustainer, master, and Lord and King. Father, I pray you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Even to be refreshed with a passage that many of us have known since our childhood and Father, we've heard it repeatedly, and with that repetition comes the danger of familiarity. With that comes the danger of not standing in awe and wonder of what's actually being expressed here. Father, I would pray for a fresh measure of insight for your people. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to be a help to them. I thank you for them. I pray that you would continue growing us together that we would continue to learn how to love and care for one another, how to counsel one another. Father God, how to call one another's forth and wash one another's feet. We, we ask for your help in this holy endeavor, Lord. Father, I pray that you'd strengthen the hearts of those that are here. I recognize, Lord God, that not all of us here are worry-free. Some of us struggle. Some of us are contending with physical situations, emotional situations, financial situations, spiritual situations. So, Father God, be for us the great God who sees our needs and meets them. We thank you, Lord, that we're able to express that you are the all-sufficient God. That, Father, you are the God who provides, who nurtures. And, Father, I pray that you would nurture us, your sheep, this day. Father, we pray for a special blessing upon Vern and his recovery, upon Terry, upon George Coffey. Father, we pray that your love would abound towards them. We pray, Lord God, that you would provide a grace and a mercy and a hope and a patience for them. We ask, Lord God, that you would help us as we stare at your word. I pray that we'd be able to read our name in the page. And I ask this. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has loved us first and best. Amen. My godmother, Debbie, gave me the Chronicles of Narnia in 1980. I read the first one in front of a fiery blaze, thoroughly caught up in C.S. Lewis's Narnia. It's for that reason that I associate The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with Christmas, and for you fellow Narnians, and there are some, I'm sure, that are here, you know that the bondage of the White Witch is that it's always winter, but never Christmas. It's cold, but there is no celebration. It's chilly, but there is no joy. It's winter solstice without a Savior, to which our response can only be, ugh, 
As humans, one of the universal human impulses, Ray Ortland says, is this desire to celebrate. Have you noticed it? We love to party. We want to cheer, to affirm, to rejoice, to revel and delight. Give us the tiniest of excuses, and we're there. And sometimes they are the tiniest of excuses. We've even created this kind of niche situation where we have a Super Bowl party, often not the team we actually root for through the year. And we eat, and we celebrate. And frankly, the only one that's been any good recently is the Eagles versus the Patriots, but that's beside the point. Give us an excuse to get together in the middle of winter, and we're there. Doesn't take much. I just want to break out of the humdrum. I want to break out of the glum, the treadmill, the tedium, and I want to cut loose with something that is cheerful, that is a human universal endeavor. I'm looking for a reason to turn that frown upside down. We want the string lights. We want to strike up the band. We want to feast. But hold on. For a feast to be, for a party to be truly wonderful, there has to be a good reason. Maybe you heard the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Has a tinny sound to it, doesn't it? Doesn't seem to be terribly fascinating. It's no wonder that folks will need chemicals to help pull off that kind of a celebration. It's often shallow and silly and a kind of escapism. How, how much more weighty the Westminster Catechism that speaks about the chief end of man and that it answers the question after asking it, what is the chief end of man? And the response is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To enjoy him forever. There's a Christmas carol, it's German, 144 in our hymn books. We don't sing it that often, how great our joy. And I was reading it this past week in my office, and stanza four really captured this essence. It says, this gift of God will cherish well that ever joy our hearts shall fill. How great our joy, great our joy. Joy, 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 joy. There's a sense there that we want to rejoice. This is a season that announces joy to the world. I want you this morning to think with me of what it means to enjoy God. Is it possible to enjoy God? The message to the shepherds is ultimately a message to us. The message is not mere sugary sentimentalism, but it was truth to live by. It was truth to rejoice over. I'm saying this for my daughter-in-law who's here this morning. If materialism has slain its thousands in our culture, then sentimentalism has slain its tens of thousands. That's emotions for emotion's sake. That's feelings for feeling's sake. But behind it, there's nothing. The emperor has no clothes. And so we want to avoid that kind of sentimentalism in pursuit of something weighty and grand and big to celebrate. I'm not sure that all of us understand 
why we should rejoice. I'm not sure that all of us understand why we announce there is joy in this world. If Lewis is correct when he says that joy is a serious business of heaven, then do I understand this serious business? Now let me give you three thoughts this morning. I want to offer you three solid reasons to rejoice and celebrate this Christmas season. First of all this, and it comes from the text, Luke chapter 2, verse 9, rejoice because God is glorious. If you're you're looking for a reason to celebrate, something with some meat to it, something with some weight to it, something with some value to it, rejoice because the message that the shepherds get that night is that God is glorious. Night after night, these shepherds have been doing the sheep thing. There was a tedious routine to their labor, I'm sure. You lead the woolly bundles out, you start a fire, you take turns keeping watch. Camping out for them probably used to be fun a long time ago. It's probably not anymore. You've got words like vigilance and deprivation and discomfort. They endured aching muscles. They slept on the hard ground until one special night. And we have it here in verse 9. The glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly, or if you have the King James, sorely afraid. That one night, God showed up. God invaded. He rent the heavens. He came down. He begins his final perfect plan. He begins by putting it into motion. He tears aside heaven, shines a portion of his radiance, on a hillside outside of Bethlehem. Brothers and sisters, we rejoice because God is glorious. Because just as this light shone into the lives of the shepherds, there was a time and a place when, for us, God became glorious. A light went on. Oh, it may not have been the light that shines on Saul, who will become Paul on the Damascus Road, But it's glorious because a light came on in our minds. We may not have said it, but we felt it. Eureka! I have found it. Rejoice because God is glorious. Into the everyday, into the common, into the chilly, even with the stench of sheep manure, God makes himself known. And I love how Ortland expresses it. He says, when he opened the sky above Bethlehem, A shaft of glory pierced our darkness. We are not left on our own. God is there. We are not left on our own. How many do we know who feel as though they have been left on their own? There's no one out there. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. You're just a cosmic accident. And so we understand that when they talk to us, with their brokenness and their darkness and their desperate need, it's because they haven't seen the glory of the Lord. The fact that God is here. Don't be mistaken, of course. Initially, the glory of the Lord is frightening. Every time you find an appearance of one of the angelos, one of the messengers, one of the sent ones of God, you always find that their first words have to be, don't be afraid, fear not. 
because there is something so stunning and glorious about it. They have to say, fear not. Why? Because there's a spectacle here that is super above and beyond nature, natural. God makes sure that people understand that this is beyond our natural world. It was Mary Elizabeth Coolidge that said, I saw a stable low and very bare, a little child in a manger. The oxen knew him, and him in their care. To men he was a stranger. The safety of the world was lying there, and the world's danger. Christmas is a wonderful mix of safety and danger. This idea of holy awe found in Luke 1 and 2, 5, 7, 9, 23, all some mention of divine visitation. Brothers and sisters, we rejoice during the Christmas season because God is so big. He is so grand. He is so mysterious. He is so mighty. He is so magnificent. I was thinking about this past week of a song that we would sing together with our kids in Sunday school, My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his, the valleys are his, the stars are his handiwork too. The reality is that for us to really, genuinely, truly, authentically rejoice at Christmas, there must be a recalling of how big, great, and gracious our God is. And when you lose that, you'll lose the real essence of what it means to enjoy Christmas. I don't want, I don't need a God who is like me. Scorsese says in his last temptation of Christ, I thought it would be helpful for people to have a a God like us. I don't want a God like me. I want to know the God who is, who is transcendent, who is the great I am. When God is rightfully big, man is rightfully small. And what makes us want to rejoice, what makes rejoicing bubble up from below us is because we recognize how glorious our God is and that he's chosen to have a relationship with us. I've often mentioned Tina Turner. She talks about, I don't need another hero. I don't need to know the way home. The reality is, is that I do need a hero. And he is the way home. We rejoice because God is glorious. Secondly, we rejoice because God is good. Did you notice it in verse 10? Then the angel said to them, here's his messenger communicating with these, sort of the lowest on the prongs of Jewish culture, the shepherds. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. The angel's reassuring the startled shepherds with this sense that what, they bring is good news. It's good tidings of great joy. It's rich, it's overflowing. And then in verse 13, we have this multitude of angels joining in this doxology, this burst of praise. In verse 14, assigning glory to God, intent on making him known, but also expressing the fact that he is wonderfully, gloriously good. And it's because of that that we could say, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. His coming is good news. It's laden with hope. It's a reason for joy. 
E. Stanley Jones, in his book, Abundant Living, says the early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to, but in delight, look what has come into the world. You see the distinction there? How many Christians have I, have I heard of? How many Christians have I listened to have said, look what the world's come to? When probably the better perspective is, look who's come into this broken world. Look that God has gifted us with light and with hope and with truth, and we get to be the purveyors of this hope. So often we're so bound up in bad news. And I'm not saying that we hide ourselves under a rock and pretend that bad things aren't happening. Oh, how glorious it is, how good it is for the people of God to express the good news that into the brokenness of life, into the sin and shame, God comes. He's given to us an answer. Jesus is good. He mirrors the infinite, holy, stunning mirth of the great I am. There's an indomitable attraction there. Do you think, brothers and sisters, that as Jesus goes about his three-year ministry, that he was sour-faced, that he was long-faced? Now, you'll say, I know, but it says he's a man acquainted with grief. I understand that. But think with me of all the other scenes in Scripture. I know there's a weightiness and a sobriety to Jesus, but there's also a delightful, delicious kind of joy to Jesus. In fact, we have that in, in John 15, where he will speak to his men. He says, my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Do you think that people would have been attracted to Jesus if he always looked as though he was just a heartbeat away from agony? They didn't think so. There was something attractional about Jesus. There was something good and kind. He's helping. He's, he's healing. He's crying out truth. He's telling stories that engages the hearts and minds of those that have ears to hear. He's attracting crowds. He's speaking as someone has never spoken before. We, we have that sense of this attractional Jesus. We get a sense of God's intent, which is to draw people, to engage people. Brothers and sisters, how dare we be happy amidst the brokenness of the world in which we live? And my response is, in light of the gospel, how dare we not be happy? This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Hear them again. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. You and Glidzo, the gospel is a gospel of joy. One paraphrase gets to the heart of that from Luke 2. Don't be afraid. I'm here to announce a great and joyful event that is meant for everybody worldwide. Not just that Jesus says heavy and weighty things. It's that he is also communicating joy, a reason to celebrate, to be thankful. How many people wrongly assume that God is only ever waiting to smack them around if they step out of line? That God is caustic, that God is critical, that he's a cosmic killjoy. And yet to go to the Gospels and to read through the Bible is to understand that, that God is good. And it's great that he's good. 
Jesus is the personification of good, and that's a reason for us to celebrate. Why do we rejoice? We rejoice because God is glorious. We rejoice because God is good. Thirdly and finally, according to Luke 2.11, we rejoice because God gives us what we most need. God gives us what we need. Who is it that is born? Verse 11, for there is born to you this day in the city of David, there it is, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Who's born in the city of David? This, this intricate plan that's being fulfilled, this plan down through the ages that God has put into motion. Who's being born there? A Savior is being born there. Not an economist or a politician or a general or a scientist or an entertainer, a Savior. Because that was our greatest need. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, because God is so wonderfully relevant. He's so relevant to man's condition. People want to relegate Jesus Christ to some inferior status. They want to push him to the margins, and yet the reality is, is that the biggest problem facing us today is our sin. It is our penchant for breaking God's regulations and rules. Regulations and laws, in fact, that lead us towards blessing and flourishing. So who do we need? Most of all, we need a Savior. We need someone to deal with the inside of us. Our culture would be fine to worship a little God, to give him lip service on certain occasions. But if you have a great, big, awesome, glorious, good God who saves us from our sins and only saves us from our sins. In other words, he's the only one capable of saving us from our sins. A pure, bleeding lamb, a sacrifice for our sins. That will bring you at odds with the culture in which we live. The Narnians here remember the story of Aslan at the stone table, who dies there on the stone table for the rat fink, Edmund. There are people who would say, oh, that's going too far. And yet the reality is, is that there is something glorious about the cross where God allows himself to be carried away for us, condemned for us. He wraps our injured flesh about him. He absorbs our sin, our shame, and dies there so that we might be together forever with the Lord if we recognize his work. Man keeps trying to see sin as something that needs therapy or pills or education or another seminar. And so you lay your money down, you pull your moral socks up, but they keep slipping sideways. Brothers and sisters, sin is a much bigger problem. We need a flesh and blood savior. And that's the declaration to the shepherds on that night on the first advent. We have a bigger problem, and only Jesus can solve it. I wrote this down. We need a lover who will go to the marketplace and lay down the purchase price to buy us off of the slaver's block. We need a champion to enter the arena and smash all comers who comes against us who would take away our lives. We need a friend to jump ahead of us and take the punishment that we had coming to us. We need a savior. Jesus Christ cannot, must not be marginalized during this season of the year. If you want to rejoice, brothers and sisters, really rejoice. 
It means that you understand the glory that is God and that this glory has come down to earth and that this glory is good and that this good glory gives us what we need most, which is a Savior. If you're looking for a reason to celebrate, really celebrate. You find it, you find it bound up here in Luke chapter 2. You'll remember the question that Jesus asks of his men, who do you say that I am? And that's the question for all of us. Who do you say? Not who does your mom or dad say? Who do your neighbors say? Who does the person down the pew say? Who do you say that I am? That's the $64,000 question. Is he great, glorious? Is he good? Is he exactly what we need, a savior? Some of us this coming season, a few days, will get some things that we don't need. I'm going to let you know that now. Get yourselves ready. Some things that are under the tree now, you don't really need them. But the, the marvel of the gospel story is that God gives us exactly what we need. Don't, don't give me golf clubs. I really am that bad. Don't get me a SpongeBob SquarePants lunchbox. I don't need it. Don't get me hair gel. I don't need it. <laughs> what I need, what I have needed my entire life is the glory of this rescuer. Brothers and sisters, that what's, that's what sets Christmas apart from just another greasy holiday time for us to reflect as the people of God that he left his throne he rent the heavens and came down because we needed a savior let me close with Emily Elliot's great words let thy voice call me home saying yet there is room there is room at my side for thee my heart shall rejoice Lord Jesus when thou comest and callest for me our shepherds have been entrusted with the real reason to party at Christmas. The shepherds have been entrusted with the real reason to celebrate at Christmas. And we have been entrusted with the real reason that we celebrate at Christmas. It's not because of fortuitous circumstances. It's not because of good luck or good karma. It's, it's because in the fullness of time, God came forth and he became our Savior. That's why we really rejoice, deep, deep down. Father God, I thank you for your people. I thank you for their affections. We want to be the kind of people who, who know why we're doing what we're doing. We want to be the kind of people who rejoice even in the face of discomfort because there are ultimate things that we've considered measured, weighted, calculated, and found ourselves thankful for. Father, I pray that would be true for your people. I pray, Lord, that as we minister to family and friends and neighbors and relatives and co-workers, that, Father, there might be a delightful joy that is increasing and growing in our hearts because we recognize the truth of why we're here, how we got here, where we're going, what life is about. Father, I pray that your people here in Westerlo 
would rejoice because you are glorious, you are good, and you give us exactly what we need. Father, I pray that this truth, amidst the cold and the chill of the place in which we live, would warm our hearts and light the way back home. I pray, Lord, that as we leave this place, our desire might be to to go and tell it on the mountain as the old spiritual calls us towards and challenges us towards. Father, I pray that you would wash our feet, change our hearts, we ask. And I'm mindful, Lord God, that there might be someone here that's never trusted in you. I pray that today they would see, they would see in you a Savior. Father, I pray that, God, the Spirit would do the work that only you can do in causing that switch to go on. And I ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.